That's John, uh, chapter 18, verses 1 to 27. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said, and Jesus the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers, with its commander and the Jewish officials, arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around the fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I have always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews came together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who'd heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, 
You aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose, Peter, whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. Good evening there, church. My name is John. I'm the uh, apostle who just wrote that letter that you've just been reading. I've spoken to your congregational pastor, Ed. He says he feels really well supported by you all, so thank you for that. But your senior pastor could probably do with some more encouragement. I'm really glad that I'm here tonight. Uh, I heard you've been reading some of my recent works in Revelation, Letters to the Churches, and uh, some great stuff there. But You know, as a church, it's been three years, actually, you've journeyed through my gospel. Spring 2020, you began chapters 1 to 10. Spring 2021, you went through chapters 10 through to 18, uh, 17. And now here we are landing my gospel in these next three weeks. Next week, a wonderful preacher by the name of Paul is going to be preaching on the resurrection hope on Easter Day. And then we're going to land it on that breakfast on the beach in uh, chapter 21. But I'm really glad that I can be here with you tonight, friends, because, because I've been told that the culture that you live in, that the world that you, you dwell in day by day, is just like the darkness of that dark night that me and my friends live through. A darkness that sort of feels like those who oppose God and stand against him triumph and nothing is standing in their way. Those who stand for God are maligned and pushed to the side, misrepresented, mistreated. I hear you can't even turn on the news these days without terrible things, darkness everywhere, evil triumphing. I've heard that even amongst yourselves within this culture, you're being culturally conditioned Christians to be embarrassed about your Christianity. So much so that when you read a newspaper listen to the radio, see what people post on their social media. You're allowed to have any opinion in the world except an opinion about Jesus Christ. I've heard that it's so bad that some of you, when you go to work tomorrow, will be too ashamed to say where you've been on Sunday night. If that's how you feel, if it feels like darkness is reigning all around you, then, friends, I'm here, I'm here to exhort you, to encourage you to take heart. If darkness feels like it's triumphing, take heart because Jesus has overcome the darkness. I wrote you a line in my the beginning of my gospel and it's as true today as it ever was. Chapter 1, verse 4, I told you this. In Jesus was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness And the darkness has not overcome it. Friends, if you are a follower of Jesus, take heart. He has overcome the darkness. But the darkness can be very scary. It can feel completely overwhelming. And and that's how it was for us that dark night that Jesus was betrayed. I'd love you to follow along with me. I'm, I'm in chapter 18. Love you to have it open in front of you. We'd just been meeting with Jesus over the Last Supper in the upper room. 
And if you recall, he had just prayed his great high priestly prayer, and he prayed three things that night. First, he prayed that he would be glorified in his crucifixion. Second, that we, his disciples, would be protected. And third, that you, those who would believe because of our testimony, that you would be one just as he and the Father are one. After praying, we left and travelled the 1.5-kilometre journey down the Kidron Valley and back up to that beautiful, walled, safe, secure garden of Gethsemane. It was a place we often went to, a place we loved to come and and worship God and, and pray to him whenever we were in Jerusalem. But Jesus went to Gethsemane that night, not to hide, but to be found. For the betrayer, Judas... He knew exactly where we were heading. He'd slipped out in the middle of the meal and known exactly where he was headed. Well, he caught us completely off guard. We drifted off into a deep sleep in full the emotion of the night and the heartache of all that Jesus had been saying that soon he would be taken from us. And all of a sudden, Judas appeared with this army of, of, of soldiers. He, he led a detachment of Roman soldiers up to, to, to meet us. Uh, a detachment of soldiers is between 400 and 1,000 soldiers. And what with the, the, the Jewish temple police and all the Pharisees and the, the authorities there, it, it felt like there were 1,000 people there coming with clubs and weapons of war and, and torches to light the darkness, the darkness that represented the, the evil thing that they were about to do. They came to us ready for a fight, ready for a battle. They caught us completely off guard, but they didn't catch Jesus off guard. I read something down for you. I read something for you to, to remind you in dark moments that Jesus is never caught off guard. It's there for you in verse 4. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out. Jesus knew. And his knowledge is an expression of his control, his understanding. Jesus knew and he was in control. And so he, he went out to them and asked, who is it you're looking for? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Then Jesus uttered the two most powerful words that exist in our vocabulary. Uh, to many, there would just be a, a mark of personal identification. But to you who have eyes of faith to see and ears to hear, who believe and, and, and read and know the Old Testament Scriptures, you know these words are the very name of God. Jesus responded, I am. I am the name of God. He took the words on his lips, the, the name of God that, that we know from when Moses had encountered the presence of God in the burning bush. Remember, Moses had gone there and God had said that he would redeem God's people out of slavery in Egypt. And Moses said, when the Israelites ask me, God, who has sent me, what shall I tell them? Tell them, God said, that the great I am has sent you. I am who I am. I will be whom I will be, said God. That is our God, the great I am, the preexistent, the eternal, the everlasting, the the substance of all creation, Jesus, our God, is the great I am. And Jesus had taken 
that name, the I am, on his own lips. Seven times I recorded it for you in my gospel. Jesus had said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. And then Jesus took those words on his lips once more and said, I am to this force that had come to capture him. And the the power of the words that night in the garden were palpable. For the Romans, this was the first time they had come face to face with this great Jesus that they'd heard so much about, the one working wonders, miracles, everyone had heard. For the Jews there that night, they knew this was a claim to his divinity. And it hit them like one of those dark, dark rooms that are all blacked out. And then a curtain is pulled back and the sunlight comes in and it floored them. They just fell flat back on their feet. It struck them because this was their encounter with the great I am. And you know, friends, one day everyone will see Jesus for who he is as this great light of the world, the light of life. One day everyone will see him as Peter, James, and I saw him at the Mount of Transfiguration when the veil of this reality was pulled back and we saw Jesus in his heavenly reality. One day, every single person will see him. Those who love him, those who hate him, those who oppose him, those who live like he doesn't exist, everyone will see him and everyone will bow down, whether willingly or unwillingly. That is our future hope. Christian brother and sister. But this night, they were just given a glimpse. Who is it you're looking for again? Jesus asked. Jesus of Nazareth, they said. I am he, said Jesus. I told you that I am he. And then as is always the case with Jesus, in his hour of greatest need, he was looking out for us, his disciples, protecting us. He stepped forward and said, if it's me that you're looking for, let these men go. Let let my disciples go. And that is the same claim that he makes over your lives. Let my disciples go. When sin and death wants to wrap its tentacles around you, Jesus, Jesus says, let my disciples go. When temptation and addictions want to grab hold of you and keep you trapped and ensnared in their deadly spiral, Jesus says, let my disciples go. When this dark world and its dark forces descend in on you and you feel overwhelmed, Jesus says, let my disciples go. And then in in what was, was like a parable of the substitution that would take place in a few hours on the cross. Jesus stepped forward in our place. He stepped forward and offered himself up, setting us free, letting us go. He stepped in to experience the judgment of God. Well, Jesus knew what he was doing. 
But Peter and the rest of us, we thought the night was totally spiraling out of control. Peter was terrified. And you know Peter, he's always been a man who shoots from the hip. Well, what did he have on his hip? A little dagger and he pulled it out. And in a sort of clumsy but intentional strike, he swept at one of the high priest's servants and hit him straight in the ear, chopping it clean off. The servant's name was Malchus, actually. In a funny irony, the name Malchus means king. So here's this servant of, servant of the high priest arresting the king of heaven. But Jesus, Jesus knew what was going on. Peter thought someone needed to take charge. Jesus was in charge. Peter thought someone needed to regain control. Jesus was in control. Peter thought it was all spiraling. Jesus was calm and he responded, put your sword away, Peter. He was not going to overcome violence with violence. He was going to overcome evil by a glad and willing submission to the will of his father. He said to us, Put your sword away, Peter. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? The cup that he was referring to is not a cup of blessing. It's not the cup of friendship. It's the cup of God's wrath, God's anger, God's judgment towards all the wrong and the sin in this world, all the wrong and the sin in your heart and my heart. Jesus came For that very purpose, to drink that cup. And he would drink it to its very dregs. Not a drop, not a scary, nothing would be left in this cup of God's wrath. For Jesus came to drink it dry. And you must know that, Christian. You who trust and follow Jesus, you must know that Jesus drank every drop of the cup of God's anger. There is not a drop left of anger that God can direct towards you. There is no condemnation, nothing left in that cup that God can direct towards you. No no frustration, no disappointment, no disillusionment. There's nothing left in the cup. Jesus drank it all. He took it in your place and he drank it dry. Because he would throw himself in front of the wrath and anger of God so that you would never have to face it. So he offered himself forward, offering his hands and feet to the ropes and the the chains as if they could contain the almighty Son of God. He, He surrendered himself to their will and they led him off to what you Aussies might call a kangaroo court. It was no real court at all. It was it was just a farce. They were bent on carrying out their will against him and and bringing out their false accusations against him. They, they led him into the, the courtyard of Annas, the high priest there, and, uh, and they peppered him with false accusations and with evidence that just didn't mount up. I, 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 I can, it might be a bit confusing about old Annas. Uh, Annas was the high priest amongst us from 6 AD to 15 AD. And we Jews, we see the high priesthood as a lifetime appointment. But the Romans were in the business of deposing our high priests. So we would continue to refer to our high priests as high priests throughout the course of their lives. 
But Annas, though no longer officially high priest, we all knew he was the one who pulled the strings around Jerusalem. You know, Annas had had five subsequent sons who had reigned as high priest. And now Caiaphas, his son-in-law, was high priest that year. But Annas was the one behind the scenes in power. So they took Jesus to his courtyard where this mock trial took place. I was fortunate enough to be in in company with some of Annas' household, so I could get myself inside the courtyard to see what was going on. Peter, however, more of a gruff Galilean fisherman-looking guy, just didn't really look the part around all these religious elite in Jerusalem, so he was trapped outside. But I did speak to the servant girl, and she, she led us through. As we were coming through the doorway, she did stop Peter, though, stopped him and said, you... You're with him, aren't you? You're one of those disciples. And I don't blame him, but, but he denied it. We were terrified. And we went through in and we, we saw what was taking place. There in the courtyard, they were coming at Jesus with all sorts of accusations that didn't mount up, with, with false evidence. This one said that, this one said another. None of it made up. But Jesus was so full of grace, so truthful. So honest, so righteous in the midst of all of this. At one point, one of the Pharisees stood forward and they slapped him across the face. And I'd seen Jesus face a lot of pressure in his life. And I thought maybe this was the moment he was going to snap. But, of course, he responded in grace and truth. If I have said the wrong thing, he says, then tell me what, what I have done wrong. He called for a fair trial. He called for witnesses to come in and be examined, but they would have none of it. They had business to do. They wanted him dead and buried by sundown so they could celebrate the Passover. Well, as Jesus stood and and stood boldly and, and remained true in everything, Peter, Peter, our dear friend Peter, well, Peter was crumbling. Cowardly, he was beginning to to crumble and and sadly deny everything. I've heard people be pretty rough on Peter, but at least he was there, which is more than can be said for the other nine disciples. But what happened to Peter that night was not not an act of terrible cowardice. It was just an, an end of human strength. It was coming to the wit's end of human bravery. Because that night in the upper room, Jesus had said to us all, you are all going to fall away on account of me. Peter denied it emphatically. No, Lord, he stood up. Even if all the rest of them fall away, I will never leave you. In fact, I'll die with you, Peter had said. But then in the garden as we were praying and we were meant to be watching and, and praying and keeping guard. Well, we'd fallen into a deep sleep, and Jesus woke us up and said these very powerful words to us that night. He said, the, fle- uh, the, bo- uh, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So wake up and pray. And friends, that's what happened with Peter that day. It was his idea that we wrote it down in all our gospels so you could learn from his mistake. He came to the end of bravery, and he had no more to offer. 
And what Jesus wants from us is not more bravery, more strength, not pulling up your straps and trying harder. No, what he wants is more faith, more trust in him. Because he, throughout all of this night, he was in control. He knew. He was calling the shots. The light, the light was still there in the darkness, and the darkness would not overcome it. He was in control as he went to the garden where he would be found. He was in control as he stepped forward and identified himself to these troops. He was in control as he stood in our place before the wrath of God. He was in control as he offered hands and feet to be bound, as he stood in front of false trials and accusers. He was in control. And so, Christian brother or sister, when you face darkness, when it feels like the darkness is coming in around you and all can feel lost, take heart. Take heart, Christian. Jesus has overcome the darkness. Jesus has overcome all that is dark in this world. And no matter what evil comes against you, what force, what devil, what demons, what darkness comes at you, it has all been beaten, conquered, crucified in the death of Jesus, the light of the world in your place. So friends, I'm just here to remind you, take heart when all feels lost. When it gets dark, don't give up. Don't give way. Don't go back. Take heart, have faith, and hold on to Jesus. Let me pray for you as we finish up. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Thank you that though the darkness sought to shroud in around him and overcome him, Thank you that Jesus, the light of the world, stayed true. His light was never extinguished. In fact, it burned even brighter in the depths of this darkness. And so, Lord God, give us faith, not more bravery, not more courage, but more faith to trust him when the darkness seems to shroud around us, to hold fast to him as the one who overcomes the darkness, knowing that one day that light of life will dawn on all people Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ, the light of the world, is Lord. Let us be standing with him on that day. We pray it in Jesus' name.